Welcome to the Growth Hacking Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Ivan Palomino. This podcast is about thought-provoking ideas to scale up and growth hack performing and human-centric work cultures. My guests are experts on mindsets, skills, and science behind work cultures. I hope you enjoy this episode. Wow. We are all familiar with incredible stories of startups. We talk about the growth, their innovation, some crazy lifestyles. Today, I don't want to discuss about their muscles, but I want to discuss about what truly makes them unique. Is their people and the mindset in order to build a startup. In this episode, I will be discussing work culture in startups, lean startup, this philosophy behind continuous experimentation, but I cannot do it alone. I have invited a special guest today that has been in a startup world since the dot-com bubble. So he has almost never worked in a big corporation, completely formatted and, and groomed inside of the start, startup world. Today I have Andres Glusman, uh, who, by the way, so he has been in several startups. He has been working for Meetup. So Meetup, he was like kind of, the, one of the early employees, and then he became like, correct me if I'm wrong, the chief product officer, some strategy vice president, all these fancy titles, he got them. Um, and he has been even living the, 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 the period where uh, Meetup was acquired by WeWork. Sad story, but it happened. Uh, <laughs> he has been driving growth through experimentation since the 90s. He has been working also, he, also for Yahoo. He founded also a company called iTraffic. Uh, and by the way, I think that through iTraffic, you ended up in Meetup. That's uh, that's what it sounds to me. It, uh, so I, I joined a company called iTraffic, which was founded by a guy named uh, Scott Heiferman. And Scott was uh, the founder of Meetup and he invited me to be a part of it. So that's my connection to Meetup. But Okay, okay. So Andres, I'm so glad to have you here because for me, it's going to be like a learning, completely a learning journey. So we were talking about this innovation and, and what makes, in fact, to have this mindset of, of creativity, continuous experimentation. And then I, I was thinking about my corporate life we were always fighting about recreating this spirit of experimentation. We went into using the concept of lean startup that was initiated in the tech world and, and has been explored by different big corporations, some cases with success, some cases like oh, disaster. Um, and I wanted to understand, Andres, what do you think can this methodology also be used to create like a good working culture Beyond just the simple innovation, can it be used by people in order to create this mindset of having better cultures? Yeah, absolutely. So thank you for having me. It's uh, it's, it's 100% true. So I, I did help a launch meetup. I made their first $14 of revenue. I had almost every single job you can have, but usually focused on product and growth and strategy. And as a result, uh, we were in a position, I was personally in a position where I got to experiment a lot with different ideas refining from previous lessons learned at other startups. And we were early pioneers in the lean startup movement. So I do have a lot of experience in what makes the lean startup special. Why did I get so excited about it? Why did I get up on stage and be on conferences at the lean startup conference and talking about it every chance I got? 
Uh, it's because it is one of the most important ways of separating out kind of guessing from doing things that make progress. And the, the big idea behind anything with regard to lean is, is sort of this humility or having a keen understanding that when you're creating, when you're building more than anything, you're just guessing and building is hard. And when you're guessing, you're going to guess wrong a lot. And ultimately what you're just doing when you're guessing, which sounds not business-like, that sounds unscientific, is, is you're uh, making assumptions about what you think is the reality of the world and what ultimately will drive an outcome you want. And the lean startup methodology is really one around, there's lots of different ways of framing it, but, but the way that I really like to think about it is that it's about having the humility to understand that you're making assumptions and to approach the work you do knowing that you're making assumptions and therefore trying to figure out how accurate are my assumptions. Mm. And so what I love was left to say when I was at, was at meetup is that our biggest competitor um, was in fact, or the biggest thing that was going to make us potentially fail was, was not a competitor. It was that we would hire very smart people and that they would make logical decisions based on faulty assumptions, mm. smart people, logical decisions, faulty assumptions. And ultimately you're gonna end up at a place where you've wasted a ton of time and money and energy when you do that, because you've done everything right, except for the, you built, you've made a bet on something that's fundamentally unsound. And so as the lean startup is applied to, to culture building is really one of sort of saying, well, how does one work together with your colleagues to make it so that you are in fact hiring smart people and you're encouraging them to make logical decisions, but make it so that the assumptions are not flawed. Make it so that the assumptions are more likely to be true. And that's what I did by virtue of running a lot of experiments at Meetup or gathering data in lots of different ways. Having things approached in an iterative cycle is really about sort of getting loops in. It's why my current company do what works, why we acquire or why we're focused on helping people understand and learn from the experiments that other companies run in order to put them in a position where they're not just making guesses and where they're actually more likely to be making logical decisions on accurate assumptions, which leads to the outcomes they want. And that's ultimately what we're all here for. Yes, there's like weird politics in certain organizations and weird backbiting or and for not the best of reasons in some organizations, but I do generally believe that people want fulfilling work and they want fulfilling culture and fulfilling environment. And usually that stems from winning. And the best way to win is by making logical decisions on, on, you know, on uh, well-grounded assumptions. And that's really kind of what my career has been all about. That's what my mindset's about. Uh, and that's what I've seen work in the cultures that I've been a part of where we really were doing great. And I've seen it there have been times in cultures and companies where I've worked at where we weren't doing great. And it's mostly because we were making bad, we were making good decisions on bad assumptions. <laughs> Andres, so what I have to highlight, and because you made me think about the, the journey in the, my previous experience in the corporate world. And yes, we learned the lean methodology, but the two pillars that you mentioned, this humility and collaboration, uh, is kind of a meta skill or, or a practice that was not developed. So we, I mean, you cannot have collaboration if still there is a lot of politics going around. Uh, mm -hmm. If the old guys who are transitioning from the change 
have the same mentality, the same mindset, and they believe that what they what they have in their minds uh, is the absolute truth that needs to be uh, uh, scaled down to the orga uh, organization, or when we believe that our products are awesome and there is no way that there could be a flow if you're selling the best drink in the world, you cannot you cannot change it. You shouldn't be changing. So there is no questioning because you as a leader will have the absolute truth. And these are two things that I you made me think that that were missing in the transition. And that's why it took a long, long time to deploy this lean startup um, philosophy across the organization because the resistance was not coming from the bottom of the organization, was coming from the top. And that's something that breaks any culture because behind this lean startup is not about the methodology as such. It's about the agility, the, the process that you have created that it is embedded in every single step in that that you take inside of the company. Love that. <laughs> That's right. And look, the, the the leadership of companies generally becomes leaders because they've got a lot of experience, because they've gotten a lot of knowledge, because they've learned a lot of lessons along the way. And so they're drawing from a wealth of experience that help them make assumptions, that help them make logical decisions. Um, what often happens is that the world changes or what they're approaching. If, if you're just repeating what you what you did before, if it's a question of saying, uh, we are in this specific market and every other market looks a lot like this one, we just have to do X, Y, and Z over and over again and we'll win, then that's a great approach to take. If what you're entering into, if the challenge you're taking on generally requires a fair amount of uncertainty, then your past experience is only going to be so helpful. And that's probably what was tripping up those leaders in that regard is that they were probably very focused either on scale or on repeating things that they know worked past tense. And they got tripped up by the things that you needed to do now, current tense, in order to make it work going forward based on the changing market conditions or, or the new market you're going into. Um, so I, I generally like to think of it as, as people are, are, are generally, I, I like to be optimistic and think that people aren't doing it to be jerks <laughs> you know people aren't doing it to be to be boneheaded I, I think they're all making very logical decisions uh and they're just maybe looking at the wrong problem or or they're they're sort of thinking the problem is one way when it's actually different and and so there's um there's times when the lean start methodology by the way is just like absolutely the wrong thing to be approaching a, 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 an organization with it, it's it's a great methodology for very quickly honing in on truth in an uncertain environment. If you have a great deal of certainty, then what you really need is to just go foot to the floor, accelerate, accelerate, go, 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 uh, and grab as much, you know, repeat the thing as often as possible and be really good at being efficient. Um, but if what you need is to be effective, which is sort of to figure out what you need to work on, then that's when a methodology like this is more useful. Today, um, the level of uncertainty about the future is <laughs> higher than ever. So a lot of big corporations are trying to survive in order to adapt to maybe needs of, uh, of customers, maybe, I don't know, being disrupted by a small company that can do things better. Um, and it seems to me that this, then I will call it philosophy of Lean Startup, 
becomes a little bit more uh, a need. And But today, and I remember that a couple of years ago, maybe two years ago, I, I, I got a report that approximately only 20% of big corporations has been establishing some type of agile methodology in order to go faster. But 20%, that's mm -hmm. peanuts. So when it is today that they need to embrace this type of change, does it mean that you need to have that their senior management should have like a certain archetype of, of, of mindset in order to embrace change and, and decide to, to do the, the to embrace the linear startup methodology or what, how would you see that? Fascinating question. It's surprising that you would have 80% of organizations choosing some sort of a, of a waterfall. Um, Indeed. Mindset. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Um, Yeah, usually waterfall mindsets are associated with large-scale project management mm -hmm. where you need, we have a lot of moving pieces and they need to be sequenced in a certain order. Mm -hmm. But it's very hard to correct. I mean, if you look at, I mean, this, I'm speaking a little out of turn, but from what I understand, even about like the, the fashion industry, for example, where there's, you order products you know several seasons ahead of time but the disruption that was h&m that was some of these companies is the ability to go very quickly see what's hitting the market now and make things in smaller batches quickly and deliver them very quickly uh, to get to respond to market conditions and to be adaptive and so um it's generally going to be the case that that organizations that are Agile are going to be able to respond to rapidly changing conditions more quickly. Yeah, uh, they might not be as effective. I guess I'm trying to figure out why. Why would you possibly argue the other side? What would be the what would be the the, the steel man for the other side? It would just be that you have uh, a massive operational logistical challenge that you need to move forward with, and therefore you need to sequence it out in a certain way. But uh, you're right. In this day and age, the ground conditions are changing so quickly that you need to have a bit of a sense and response systems on the ground. I, I guess there is a little bit of like a psychological reason is that we are not, in most of the cases, we are not, we are a little bit resistant to big changes. And for us, it's a little bit better to be in, a, in an environment that give us the illusion of control. When you say that next 2024 budget, I'm going to prepare it now. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be that exactly. And this is the type of activities that we will do. It gives us like the satisfaction, like, yeah, we know what is going to happen, but in reality, we don't have control, any control of the future. But that's the, 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 the psychological satisfaction that we get. And still now we are going to say that senior management has been, has been probably in, that, in the, those type of positions for 20 years and it's difficult to change. It's all, almost like you have been already formatted. And if you come with a methodology where you say, I might have this type of features for a new service, uh, but I don't know what is going to be the end result. So they still prefer to do this project management approach where you write 20 pages to describe the solution for an implementation that you will do within eight months or 12 months, but it gives them a little bit the satisfaction of, I know how much I'm going to spend and they care less about the outcome, which is, one of the benefits of the linear startup is to know to 
slowly validate outcomes with the real users so that there is lower chance of failing, right? That's right. Well, one approach you can take there in that situation is, is to have a bit more of a portfolio approach, hmm. a portfolio of different initiatives. So for example, if you run a subscription company, if you have a subscription-based service, you have a pretty good sense as to what your subscription revenue is going to be next month based on the last nine months or 12 months of subscription revenue on renewals. Um, and then you've got a sense of maybe around if you spend this much money, you're going to get around this much money of, of from new customers, as an example. Uh, so those are pretty much like known entities and they're sort of around a boundary of like how much better can I get or how much worse would it get based on your known entities around an initiative that's kind of established. If you have something that's brand, brand new, a seedling, then, you know, what you need to, your, your ability to forecast, your, your ability to see the future becomes extremely opaque. It's very foggy and it's very hard to know what kind of impact you can have. And so essentially in, in, inside of certain organizations, what you really need is a portfolio of bets that are kind of coming into maturity at certain times. So you know, ideally you have those bets that are established that are driving the lion's share of your revenue that continue month in month out to deliver reliable predictable revenue that you can use to pay your employees buy your pay your suppliers you know reward your shareholders etc cetera, etc cetera. and then there's this, the roster of the new things that are coming that are extremely unpredictable and that's really what you want to think about is like kind of larger bigger bets that are more out there uh, that have less certainty and, and there your mindset or what you can predict from them is different and your goals for them have to be different as well. Indeed. Uh, Andres, uh, let, let me get a little bit more personal with you. I want to understand, is it because of your, that your mindset as entrepreneur or as the way of looking at things in the, uh, around the world has been formatted that has made you never consider to work for a big corporation? You have been, mm -hmm. you made your life, life in, the, in the startup world. Have you considered ever to go and work for a big corporation? It's a, it's a funny question. So as it turns out, it's probably buried uh, deep, deep in my LinkedIn, but I started my career at the Boeing Corporation. Yeah. And I um, went there because I was a, a kid of scientists. My parents were scientists and uh, I wanted to learn about business. And I thought, well, what better place to learn about business than, than one of the world's largest corporations? So I went to Boeing. And I joined them and I did learn a lot, but it was a very slow moving organization for me. And it was the wrong kind of organization for me at the time. Uh, so <laughs> the funny thing is I said to my, I said to my boss, like, how is it that, that we stay in business? This is so slow moving. And he said, oh, well, you should look at our competition. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so if you just see what our competitors are doing, we move a lot faster than they do at that time. It was, uh, it was a different time and era, and it's um, it's a different kind of thing for me. So, so I happened to leave at the birth of the internet um, in order to go pursue and play around with what I was working on. But actually, like I worked at Yahoo uh, in the early 2000s. I did, uh, did, did a, a summer internship there when I was in business school. And it was when they were just starting to get reborn and having a really interesting ride um, coming out of the dot-com explosion. There was a period of time where they were really doing some interesting stuff. And I worked there and it was fascinating. And I thought it was really cool. And I don't, um, I think it's all about trade-offs, Ivan. It's all about trade-offs. And so, you know, large corporations have the advantage to whatever impact you're going to do, whatever you do delivers that impact at a massive scale. 
And so, you know, a 1%, a 3%, a 5% improvement in something at a billion dollar scale <laughs> is a huge amount of, of impact when you're, when you're affecting billions of people in some regards. Um, and uh, as a result, they have to move kind of a little bit more. There's a lot more moving pieces. It's slower to move. So it's uh, historically been less for me in part because um, I tend to be in places where it rewards a lot of um, entrepreneurial creativity and a lot of entrepreneurial drive uh, and you the ability to move very quickly and, and kind of bring new products to market, which tends to be entrepreneurial areas. Uh, so long-winded answer, I'm, I'm not against uh, big, big companies. Uh, I, I'm certainly not, uh, I'm not looking for them right now. <laughs> I would ever be looking not. for them. You know, and my goal is to, is to eventually just uh, work from a beach, uh, you know, work remotely as much as I possibly can. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, in the, in the distant future, but, but now it's, uh, it's, it's a really different kind of challenge. And I just, again, I just think that people are good and people are trying their best to make the maximum impact they can. And in a larger organization, you're going to do whatever you're going to be in an environment where in exchange for moving more pieces, having more moving pieces, you're going to make bigger impact. And it might take a little bit longer, but you might make a pretty substantial impact in the, in a startup. You can get to the spot where you're going to be there, but look, my goal is to make do what works um, have the impact of a major corporation too. So, you know, every entrepreneur who says that they're against big companies is sort of like, well, what do you, you want your company to be at the end of the day? I get it. So you have been working in startups at different stages of, of development. Um, some of them were at early stage. Some of them were already in the full growth stage. What are the biggest challenges that startups have when they scale up do they how can they do it so that they keep the soul of the beginning when it was a small group the pizza stories and all, all the stuff and then suddenly there is thousands of people joining and some of them are going to be dispersed in in several parts of the world what are the challenges that you have observed yeah so if you're lucky, your startup will go through a journey and, and, you know, there's the time and a venture where you're in, in figure it out mode. We got to figure out what this thing is, what people want, what's the basics, how does this work? And most companies will fail at that point. <laughs> so the, you're in figure it out mode. And then you're, once you figure it out, quote, unquote, then you're in a spot where you're in, in let's get, do more of it mode, grow mode. And that's what you're really talking about. And when you start to grow, it's what happens when an organization moves from, you know, I think you referenced two pizza teams, but it goes from uh, 11 people. There's a sort of a phase shift when you get into the 20, 25. Mm -hmm. Suddenly there's a coordination challenge around 50 to 75. There's a big one at like 120 ish. It's even bigger. You stop knowing everyone's name. And then at that point, you start having multiple organizations that are, that are moving parts. There's a lot more layering and coordination more and more of the effort goes into just keeping the moving parts aligned more so than you can pull off when it's so informal um and then you also start to have lots of competing interests and competing um priorities and which is often what people call politics in some regards but more often than not it's just that you have just different alignment of priorities uh with different kinds of organizations where everyone's oop, doing their best to solve something as best as they possibly can um, but they're going to bump into each other because they're not solving the clarity of the purpose. The clarity of the problem you're solving becomes a little bit harder to um, to align. Hmm. 
So when is the moment that you feel like a CEO of a startup should be start really worrying about keeping the culture of the organization? Is it across all the stages or is, is there like a critical stage where if you don't take care of it, it breaks? From personal experience, it's, it's at every single stage. It's at every stage, right? So Tony Shea was an investor at, at Meetup. He was sort of famous for um, starting a company that did extremely well uh, called Link Exchange. He started in the 90s and yeah. it did extremely well. And he didn't really pay attention to culture. It was really about like, let's grow, grow, grow. And didn't, didn't, didn't pay a lot of attention to culture. He said that at a certain point, he just hated coming to work at his own company. He, he just could not stand the idea of it. And it was just sort of out of control. And he made that a huge point when starting Zappos. Not, he didn't start Zappos. When taking over Zappos and, and growing Zappos to um, really make sure that culture was front and center and was an essential part of what they worked on. And, and in many regards, that is the CEO's job. There's a lot of people who are responsible for culture, but the buck stops there and, and culture defines everything. So it's it's the CEO's job on day one when there's one or two people and it's you know the CEO's job on the day they go public and beyond when, when they're huge and there's uh, tons of people, it's, it's always the CEO's job. Um, if you had the opportunity to give an advice to a CEO of a big corporation uh, regarding work culture, if they had to, to learn something out of the startup world uh, regarding this culture of innovation, this agility, what what ex, uh, what advice would you would you would you give them regarding something positive, and also what adv advice would you give them regarding something that is negative in the startups that they shouldn't be doing in uh, in the big corporations? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, from my personal experience, and, and I haven't run a large large I haven't run a company uh, a, a publicly traded company, a Fortune five hundred company. So, from the experience that I that I have that I could offer, it's really around a keen understanding of that equation I was talking about earlier, that you're hiring smart people who are going to make logical decisions based on assumptions. And are they making them based on faulty assumptions or validated assumptions? And how the quickest path you can possibly get to validating your assumptions is what's going to separate successful teams inside the corporation, successful divisions of the corporation, successful corporations from their competitors in the long haul. And so it's being a laser focus on that. And in particular, there's sort of two questions I like to ask, which is what has to break in your favor in order for this to work? And then what's the fastest way you can figure out whether that something's going to break in your favor? So those two questions repeated over and over again can cascade all the way down from a board, all the way to the C-level, to the, to the uh, different levels of mid middle management, all the way down to the people on the front lines. Every single job, every single challenge, every single project generally is going to be defined by that question. What has to break in your favor in order for the project to work? What's the fastest way to figure out if those things are going to break in your favor? Everything is all about reducing the risk of failure. That, that's a constant in the start, uh, startup world. Uh, mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it's like when you're in a big corporation, you have you don't think that you you will ever fail. Nevertheless, that happens, uh, and I think it's going to 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 happen more often than not. I, I mean, I, I I mentioned to you just before that 
I grew up in Switzerland. So I comp a bank like Credit Suisse going to hell just in a couple of days, that was unthinkable. That's, and that is going to happen more and more often. Um, yeah. This concept of reducing the, uh, the risk of failure um, is something that we, I mean, there is different names for that, but we let's call it like test and validate what works, which is by the way, what you do in your company, do what works. Mm -hmm. um, can this philosophy of continuous experimentation be the secret to, to create like successful, productive uh, work cultures? This continuously, this Kaizen approach, I know that you may not like the, 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 the word Kaizen, but this continuous experimentation iterations about, I have data, it works or not. And then if it doesn't, then the hell out. Yeah, no, this notion of continuous improvement, continuous iteration, continuous feedback loops and getting better at whatever you're working on, there's no doubt about it. And it's also, look, it's either, to my, from my point of view, it creates a more rewarding environment, which you ultimately want to be a part of. If you're constantly just doing the exact same thing over and over again in the exact same way, it's not so interesting. If you're able to gather data and make things better, well, then that feels like you're making progress. And I just generally believe that the feeling of making progress is fundamental to people being motivated to do anything. So if you, like the feeling of just making a little bit of progress every single day is a huge impact on one's desire or morale or desire to make a contribute, like to keep contributing in, in general. And, and, and so I do feel like it's absolutely fundamental to it. And it's, it's again, one of those things where it's so interesting because, you know, in larger corporations, yeah, people are are generally, there's more experience, there's more of a track record. You've got a more established framework and you have a lot more data about how things have worked in the past. And that gives you a lot of opportunity to leverage. And of course, there's abilities to innovate on top of it and grow. And that's the only way you can really grow at a certain point. And aside from just going out and buying a new thing, you're either gonna, you know, you're gonna start something new, you're gonna build something new, or you're gonna make your current thing better, more efficient. And so if you're gonna make it more efficient or more effective, uh, that's going to come from that continuous improvement cycles that are going to come through. I can't see that not being the way to like creating a fulfilling and enjoyable workplace. So that's what I would I would generally coach for. Try to remember back to your question. What was the original question too? Is <laughs> related to? As I was on a rant there, I got got lost <laughs> in my own rant. So it, if. Can the philosophy of continuous experimentation be the secret to successful work cultures? Yes, absolutely. I mean, because the continuous experimentation as applied to developing work cultures, generally to me, the most successful work culture is a culture where people feel like they're driving momentum and they're, they're having a sense of momentum and things are, are positive and moving forward. And winning teams tend to have a lot more, winning teams tend to have a much more robust and interesting environment, like good things are happening there. Yeah. Uh, it's when things start to fail that 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 all of the cracks start to show, all of the uh, the, the the challenges start to become much more material, and get, you're sort of working in a hard working. It's harder to get things done, um, and, and so yes, the things that ultimately continuous innovation, continuous experimentation, is the anecdote to the fact that most things are constantly devolving, you know, or constantly in a state of decay or expiring or getting worse, and they need to be maintained. Or and if you're not Maintaining something, it's getting worse. 
And the alternative is if you can maintain it and then innovate on top of it, it's going to get better. And so it's you have to not only uh, the continuous improvement when it comes to culture building stems from either things that you're doing directly to experiment on the culture improvement or on the larger outcome that generally fuels a more robust and exciting and vibrant work culture. One of the things that you that you make me think, because you mentioned about the uh, uh, failing, uh, it is about that the biggest, one of the biggest friction in big corporation is that the acceptance of failure. So when you fail, in fact, you are blamed. You will be pointed out. It is your fault. You didn't do it correctly. Um, while in agile organizations, I would say that failure is as long as there is a learning, so you swallow it because it's part of the um, the uncertainty that there is uh, around the world. But at least you tried. You you did something. Innovation can cannot come from doing something the same all all over again. So. Uh, and, and this is very difficult for uh, big organizations to accept that there is one moment that you need to show data. Uh, and maybe that's one of the reasons why certain programs on Lean Startup or full transformation through agile uh, approaches fail is because they they cannot be sincere about the data. They Because you, you can play around with data and show something positive and then move it to the next stage, despite the fact that it was a real failure. There was no a clear KPI that showed that uh, it is, um, that, that, is a, that is a failure. So have you, do you have the same in the startup world? Do, do you play around sometimes about failure or is it more acceptable that if somebody from your team tells you, uh, no, it didn't work, whatever I was working for one or two months, or would you be able to accept it in an easy manner? And what could be the conditions to, for acceptance? Yeah, it's a great question. So it's gonna sound sacrilegious, but even in the lean environment, nobody likes to fail. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to fail. Nobody wants to celebrate failure. Um, it's a thing that occurs. It's an outcome. Mm occurs and when you're running experiments it's an outcome that occurs a lot when you're innovating it occurs even more when you're trying to change behavior it occurs a lot what the framework i believe that one needs to have is not sort of saying that we accept failure it's a framework that says we understand that framework is going to happen a lot and so as an example, on Optimizely, a platform that makes it easy for people to run experiments, 80% of experiments that are run on their platform do not positively move the needle. Eight out of 10. So eight out of 10 months <laughs> that were spent building things are producing no results. Um, I don't think anyone would be excited about me like, yeah, we won two out of 10 times. Um, now, what, what do you need to do? Why is it okay in certain environments is one, it's like, you need to understand that that's the level, that's the playing field you're playing in to begin with, whether you do, whether you run it as an experiment, whether you run it as pre-post, whatever change you're making, if those are your odds, those are your odds. The rational thing to do when you have odds like that are kind of twofold. One, how do you very quickly make it so that your 
failures are very inexpensive. Hmm. If you look at the v, like the, the startup ecosystem, most startups fail. And ideally they're going to fail when they only have a million dollar check or, you know, or small checks, as opposed to when they're at the 70, 100, $80 million phase uh, where they're getting these big checks and they're failing. Well, that's a lot worse outcome, but in a smart startup environment, you're, you're dealing with small outcomes or small bets. So ideally you want to be failing and have the consequences of your failures be very small. And then the second thing is you want to work like hell to make it so that you're not only winning two out of 10 times. Shoot, if you can win three out of 10 times, you're doing 50% better. If you're doing four out of 10 times, you've now doubled your hit rate. And so how do you design a system? How do you design an environment? How do you design routines, reward systems that motivate you to get better at improving that win rate? Uh, and if you don't start by acknowledging the win rate, if you don't believe, if you don't understand that you're playing a game that is really stacked against you where you're going to lose two out of 10 times, unless you can make these systematic improvements, unless you can find ways of improving your win rate, then you're going to be miserable and you're going to basically get fired because you're going to set the wrong expectations. If you can set the right expectations, make it so that your downside risk is as small as possible and your upside benefits from being right are very high. Well, then you, you, as long as you can get enough trials in, you're going to, you'll, you'll be fine. And that's what we, that's essentially why we exist. You know, we exist because then we're saying, well, if you can learn from everyone else, you can improve your win rate from two, two out of 10 to do considerably better than two out of 10. If you're learning from other people, it, what's the cost of running a bad experiment? Well, if you can figure out how to shorten your cycle of running it, or as somebody said to me the other day, the best experiment sometimes is the one you didn't run hmm. is if you can learn from somebody else and not recreate their mistake. Well, then you've just embraced their failure. Um, but I don't think, and I'm certainly not in a position where I'm saying, Oh, it's great to fail. It's not great to fail. It sucks to fail. <laughs> it's nobody likes it. Nobody likes being rejected on a sales call or whatever the case may be. So it's always about um, improving your win rate and reducing the cost of being wrong. Coming back to, to, to the fact that you have used as, a, as, as an example, your, your company, Do What Works. So what you're saying to me is that Do What Works looks at what others have done in order to reduce the risk of failure with mainly marketing campaigns. Is that exactly. correct, Andres? We serve, we serve the growth teams, the marketing teams, product teams at major corporations, you know, six of the top streaming brands, major B2B SaaS companies, major banks, et cetera, et cetera, direct-to-consumer healthcare companies, they're all running experiments. Um, and the steady state, the industry, the norm is that they're going to lose two out of 10 times. They're going to win two out of 10 times. They're going to lose eight out of 10 times. Yeah. And they come to us because they want to learn from others so that they don't have to recreate their failed experiments and instead learn from them to leverage the things that are working stop doing the things or don't try the things that don't work and uh, focus the resources on the things that are much more likely to win. So that's what we're all about. And that's in the context of marketing, there's really no reason to believe that it's not going to also be true for other kinds of experiments that are being run elsewhere, though. I, I think in general, it's very hard to win. It's very hard to change behavior. It's very hard to innovate. And so as much as possible, whatever you can do to improve your win rate, is probably the most profound impact you can have second only to reducing the downside cost of being wrong. What I like Andres is, is like, is like the, it is the ultimate growth hacking tool because you get to learn from real data, not like just from a concept or a guy in a YouTube video who will tell you, these are the three things that you must do. And then 
Yeah, in which yeah, conditions? I watch those, Ivan. I watch those. I see people on LinkedIn giving advice on landing pages, and just they're just they're just wrong so often because they're just not data backed. It's not based on data. It's just based on gut, and they say it with a lot of confidence. And it's it's really criminal. Like you really shouldn't be allowed to do that. It's it's um, it is what it is. But uh, but no, it's it's the difference is is that's how you end up losing eighty percent of the time um, as opposed to using data at the outset to, to make better decisions. <laughs> Funny thing, Andres, uh, this is super personal. Like what I'm going to tell you is that I'm a friend like two years ago, he was telling me a little bit like kind of what you do and do what works. He wanted to do it. He's also in the tech world and all the stuff. He's, but he decided at the end to don't do his entrepreneurial journey. But he was trying to to explain me this, uh, this idea. And he was like, kind of what you what you have achieved. That's incredible. I have to tell him, by the way, to, to go and check your, maybe yeah. that will encourage him to go entrepreneur finally. <laughs> Still, anyways, <laughs> I wanted to, to go back to somebody that you have mentioned uh, just before, Tony Shea from Zappos. So in, he's one of the most famous guy in the startup world, but not because of his business as such, because for instance, Zappos is not well, super well known in Europe or even in the Middle East, but more about this is a story about creating a culture of delivering happiness. So you mentioned that before he had his own startup and the culture was shit. Uh, then he decided to become like a kind of a VC uh, guy and then he invested in Zappos and then he took over the reins of, of Zappos. So th this concept of delivering happiness was like, the hell is like the example in the human resources world about how you should be building great cultures because it was like saying what do we need to build in terms of rituals uh behaviors encourage behaviors uh mindset in the in the company to make like people are happy to work with me even though they are not paid like amazingly better than the, the competition have you heard about other startup startup founders who are kind of going to this direction of redefining work work culture being good examples of great work cultures yeah absolutely i mean and tony was very special in that regard in that everything he did was extremely deliberate with regard to the work culture and they relocated their company to den to from from california to las vegas in part because they knew they would find a lot of people who worked in the hospitality industry and that was the kind of person that they would reinforce and they invested a lot into training and a lot into developing of people and reinforcing cultures I will say my last company, um, Meetup, was was an amazing culture, and I'll give uh, tons of credit to the CEO and and actually uh, the CFO, uh, who was also in charge of people, um, for just being absolutely deliberate on the kind of place we wanted to build and enforcing it by making hard decisions all along the way and getting rid of people when they were the wrong fit for that kind of an environment, when there was wrong behaviors, very, very quickly nipping behaviors in the bud that can easily manifest and instead being very transparent, very open and honest and being willing to disagree, but but being kind and, and being really, really great about the kind of place we want to build. We also built a place that was able to recruit people who were extremely talented who the market 
uh, wasn't serving well. And so we had a, a culture in New York and technology that was extremely attractive to certain communities. Our leadership team was over, uh, was 50% women. Uh, our engineering team was, uh, the leadership of it was, was predominantly women as well. And it made an environment and a place where there's a lot of tech bros that people said, people who were really great engineers who said, you know, I really want to work in a place that doesn't have that kind of a, a bro-y culture. Mm. Uh, it gave us the ability to hire world-class talent and have a leg up because they wanted to be around a certain kind of person. And it ultimately wasn't just sort of like a, oh, we're doing it because it's the right thing to do. It was actually an extremely smart business decision that led to getting much higher quality talent that you could possibly get in another environment um, in a place where everyone's throwing money and kombucha and stock options and various other like perks and benefits to everyone. Um, they, they had the right to choose where they want to go. And it, we earned the right to be the place that they chose to go to. I, I still remember that story. And I don't know if it is a legend that somebody invented or really happened that uh, in Zappos, people were like, after three months, he, they were offered the choice of get a check uh, to leave the company if they believe that they were not the right fit. That was mm -hmm. like, do you think that was true? Oh, by the way, Andres? It's definitely true. Holy. <laughs> yeah, it's a smart business decision in that it uh, gets rid of people who are the wrong fit very quickly. <laughs> um, Andres, what is the, the, the type of work culture that you are developing in, in your company in Do What Works? Yeah, it's a great question. It's much, much harder uh, at uh, for our company in part because we've been a distributed company since day one. Uh -huh. And so there's a lot around being around people, around having an office that creates a certain vibe. In a distributed culture, it's, it's something that's much more difficult to figure out how to do. Um, ultimately, I think the culture generally flows from the founders and then the people you hire and the way in which you engage and what you prioritize. I won't claim that we've cracked the code. I think we're we're learning how to create a culture in a distributed environment with team meetings and making time for the um, for people to engage and to get to know each other. We value a lot what my co-founder and I tend to value and what I think the kinds of people we've attracted to the company and other leaders in the company that we've attracted value, which is we value innovation. We value truth seeking. We value being kind. We value being open and honest with people. Uh, we value being creative. And we try to celebrate it, reward it as much as possible. It's um, generally, and we um, hire people sometimes and, and it's not the right fit and they don't stay with the company as a result. It's, it's one of those things where you have to make decisions sometimes to, to have people not continue to be with you. Um, and it sucks because you made a commitment to them, but you really want to do everything you can to put them in the right position afterwards as much as you can. But that's really how we create culture is just trying to reward behaviors that and reward the kinds of people that are really aligned with what we value and having clarity on it and being willing to make the difficult decisions at times, which has been few and far between, but it has happened where we parted ways with folks because um, it, it just wasn't the right fit in, in that regard. How, how do you reward the, the right behaviors? Like for instance, you have someone who spends quite a lot of time like get getting to know the rest of the team or he's who is more collaborative. Is it like a financial reward? Is it like a recognition in front of everybody? 
uh, how do you reward so that people get to know that, oh, that's the kind of behaviors that I want to see in Do What Works? Yeah, it's mostly been a function of one, hiring a certain kind of person and creating opportunities for them to do the kind of work where they can exhibit the behavior and shine. And so we have lots of people who've been uh, promoted shoot three, four times inside the organization, started off in one role and evolved and grew and grew and grew and grew and gotten to take on a lot more responsibility in a lot of different ways uh, by doing great work and doing it in a way that just really moves us as a team forward. And everyone knows it. We celebrate them as much as we can. They get promoted, they get improved, you know, um, the compensation or all, all the good things that generally happen along the way is uh, is mostly been a function of yeah just reward through through project selection and reward through uh, financial and through recognition it's huge and then the inverse is also true which is that you sort of uh, have to know when people aren't the right fit and 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 move on from them so you get rid of people even though let's say that I do an amazing job like I'm an amazing developer uh, but I have shitty behaviors. I'll say that I've never been in a position yet at this company where we've had that be the case. It's mostly been a question of somebody having the wrong skill set okay. or not, not being able to come in and do the work in the right way uh, for the whatever job that they have has generally been the thing. We've been fortunate in that we have hired effectively and we don't we have people that are just kind and and wonderful people, like really, really nice people. Um, so we don't really have that situation where you've got the superstar who's just a jerk and everyone deals to them because they're so good at doing X, Y, and Z. They probably wouldn't have been hired in the first place. So uh, we've not had that problem yet. Okay. We probably will. I mean, at some point, uh, it, odds are, um, I would hope that we would address it quickly. And now being a high performer that ruins your culture, it does not uh, buys you a win today, but costs you a lot tomorrow. Yeah. Exactly. Um, Andres, we had ended this episode and it was quite informative in terms of, of the, the journey of startups, what we can learn or not from, from the, uh, the startups, the mentality, the man mindset, this approach of continuous experimentation. And I wanted to ask you, so if somebody wants to reach out to understand more what, what What's the value of your company uh, to who wants to understand how do what works can help them grow faster, growth hack the, their way through learning from uh, from others uh, instead of, I mean, doing the mistakes. Uh, how can they reach out or try or know more about do what works? Yeah, so uh, they can go to do what works .io. Yeah, do what works .io, or they can. Uh, connect with me on LinkedIn uh, as well. So those are two great, great resources to, to be able to learn more. We typically, for uh, our CR, our conversion rate optimization product, work with folks in the mid-market and enterprise. And then we have a brand new product that focuses on performance marketing and that we work with people who are marketers at, at all stages of company. Uh, and so they can get, a, get in touch with us if they want to use our technology to be able to get more results from their current spending on their search engine marketing. That's great, Andres. So I'm going to be putting the uh, the links just below. Andres, right. it was really lovely, lovely to meet you. Gracias, muchas gracias. Yeah. <laughs> My pleasure. Uh, very nice to meet you, Ivan. Thank you, Andres. I, I, 
I'm, I was so happy to spend the, this evening with you. It's my mm -hmm. evening, your morning. <laughs> Take care, Andres. Okay. All right, bye. Bye.